Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine, coming to you alive from Archetype Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska, on the eve of the Maha Music Festival. And like live music, Team Human celebrates the magic and power of live human connection in a world hell-bent on turning us against one another, while the rich and powerful take our money, spoil our planet, rape our children, and harvest our data so they can keep on doing it. It's time to intervene on behalf of humans. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, our founding producer, Omaha native musician, and my former media student, Stephen Bartolome, and art revolutionary, founder of the Union for Contemporary Art, whose exhibit, Undesigning the Red Line, opened here this month, Bridget McQueen Shoe. It's time to take back space time from the impressors. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. So I've been watching the multi-network television show that's been passing as the Democratic Party's nominee selection process with some chagrin over these past few weeks. The whole process has almost nothing to do with candidates' grasps of the issues or executive competency. If it did, then they would just select Elizabeth Warren and get on with it. No, instead it has everything to do with television. That's all it's about, television. Both networks, CNN and MSNBC, our dear MSNBC, so far they seem to be exclusively trying to proclaim or maintain the dominance of television in American society as if fighting against its inevitable surrender to the internet. I watched MSNBC, they did the first debate. I don't know if you remember, it opened with this really dramatic music and then Rachel Maddow and Chuck Todd kind of doing that little uh, pre-game 
banter. It was like you were watching one of those uh, uh, HBO like pay-per-view uh, boxing matches, and you hear a little bit of this banter. Oh, what's going to happen tonight? Like, oh, where they're going to? Whatever happens, it's going to be a show. Believe me, a show. Is that what we're here? We're here as such entertainment. It's a show. And then the set, I was so confounded by the, I don't know if you remember, the candidates were all standing in front of monitors. And the monitors were just playing these weird red and blue distracting patterns. And because they're just such bad, probably non-union technicians shooting this thing, those monitors made moray patterns as they tried to zoom in and out. The, uh, the It's like, duh, this is like, like, Broadcasting 101. So there are these moray, psychedelic moray patterns going on behind the candidates as they speak. And I'm thinking, well, what is that trying to communicate? That they have this going on. What is that saying? They're saying, you are watching television. Yes, there's a candidate here, but don't forget, this is primarily about TV. If you're going to look at a clip of this on YouTube, you are going to remember that this was on TV. These are TVs. You're looking at TVs. We're looking at more TVs than candidates. TVs. TV. We're still here. We're still alive. You know, and I, I watched Warren, who actually had the worst one behind her. You know, and I'm thinking, did they really not know that this was going to be like? Did they not know that this was going to be so distracting and bizarre and horrible? No, of course they knew. They're saying, look at me. Look at me. The TV channel is saying, look at me. And even they had a, an audio glitch of some kind during that debate, you remember? And they sort of said, stop, stop talking a minute. We're still working on the audio. There was, you know, we're hearing something in our, in our thing, so shut up, candidate, while we work out the production values. It reminds me of how you ever watch pro football and they call an official timeout? I always get mad because you know what an official timeout really is? It's the television channel needs to run an ad. So stop the game. Official timeout. It's not official. It has nothing to do with the officials of the game. It has to do with the officials of the broadcast network. It's TV. And then the CNN one the next month was subtle, right? A little bit more subtle. So it was less about the style of the broadcast and more about the content. They decided, let's do kind of the Real Housewives of Orange County version of a political debate, right? So it's like, oh, Biden, she said this about you. What do you think? You know when they do those confessionals, they stick them on a stool alone, she goes, Oh, and when Marsha said that about me, I just thought she was terrible. Right, they ask the candidates to challenge each other. Why don't you go tell Biden what you really think, Kamala? Come on, come on. Remember what you did that last time? No, go, go get him. Do it again. Right? It's like to get them to fight because this is, this is compelling television. Right, they want to maximize the probability of someone saying a zinger. Right, because then the zinger becomes, oh, look at what was said in our debate, right? She called him an income poop or whatever. Just get, that, get that zinger because then it's going to get on the other shows and they'll have to put MSNBC or CNN under it. And the problem with this is not just that it's stupid. The problem with it is it ends up shaping the election. It ends up creating and, and uh, promoting the values that we are supposed to care about as these candidates compete. And what are those values? Well, they're, they're how well can a candidate evade a complicated idea and then come across on television in some compelling way, right? How well can they establish rapport, 
right? So what is that skill? How well can you look into the lens of a television camera and pretend like you're connecting with the eyes of the viewer somewhere far away? It's that Cory Booker thing that he does, right? You open the eyes and you go. I mean, he's so far right now the best at the sort of the TV era candidate thing, the, the I feel your pain, Bill Clinton on Oprah sort of level reach through the lens and make a good America, right? Or craft a speech, right? Craft a speech that has a good beginning, middle, and an end and act as if that just happened, right? Oh, when I was a little girl and this happened and that, or, uh, and I, 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 whether it's Elizabeth telling her story about, you know, that she, she wanted to be a teacher and she went to a thing and I went to a this and like that, and therefore, right, it's good old Aristotelian crisis climax, come with me, march up the hill and we'll make America a, a great place. Right? Or how well can they defend themselves in a staged fight without looking mean to the other person? So the idea is now I want to be, I want to zing you as hard as I can, but it has to look kind of like effortless jujitsu. I'm being innocent and I've hurt you in the process because you're evil and I'm not. Right? Or, of course, come up with the, the memorable one-liner. And then, so I'm upset enough about that. And then right after that debate, I see Stephen Colbert. He does a live late night because he wants to then do commentary on the debate. And what is his commentary? His commentary is basically attacking whatever human foibles still showed through to shave off that last bit of humanity from these people, to, to criticize their inability to act on television. So here's a, and I, you gotta love Stephen Colbert, he's on our side, so to speak, but here's a television professional criticizing politicians for their inability to be as good a television professional as him. It's not deconstructing their, their platforms, not their policies, it's deconstructing their performances, embarrassing people for whatever they still show of their real humanity, that stuff that actually is the non-performative real human being, that last little part, that hasn't been shaped into a, a, a you know, Tony Robbins neurolinguistic programming television, you know, BS crap, that real part, that's what you're supposed to get rid of, right? And he's pointing out the incompatibility of the real human being with the TV show that they're supposed to be on. Oh, did you notice? And when he does it, I mean, my God, when he was picking, he picked on Buttigieg. You know, and he started saying how Buttigieg was acting impatient, and he started going like this for Buttigieg's impatient. I'm like, dude, you're getting a little close to gay bashing here. You know, he's like imitating, oh, well, you're not doing it on, it's like, what, are, what is going on here? And somehow that's allowed because it's politics. Now, and the problem with it for me is that television performance becomes the primary credential for a candidate. And I know we talked about it way back in the, in the 60s, you know, when, when, um, Kennedy ran against Nixon, and they say that if, had this been on radio, Nixon would have won because he was passionate, and it's a hot medium, and Kennedy was cool, so he did it on TV, so Kennedy won that. But today, it feels like all these candidates are racing and competing to be good television performers, except one, right? Except Trump, Trump himself, who's figured out that the ultimate way to, way to be the ultimate ca television character is to rebel against television altogether which is what reality TV was. It was saying, no, no, these West Wing fantasies about how politics works, this Murphy Brown, you know, fantasy that all of us leftists are in, that's not nearly as real as the cutthroat ethos of American Idol and, and The Apprentice and cops. 
Cops is closer to the real America than NYPD Blue, right? Or at least it's footage. You know, Trump is not, is, is not a TV actor. He's actually a reality TV producer. So he understands that every wrong thing he does releases the potential energy of our troubled relationship with television. Every single one. And what it does, even for those of us who hate him, as well we should, even for those of us who hate him, there's still dramatically the relief of someone who's broken that fake fourth wall of corporate-sponsored television media. You know what? Television media is supporting the worst corporations on the globe, the Monsantos. Where, where, who's, where's my bumper sticker giver? Yeah, the Mon thank you for that. He gave me a, a Monsanto is poison bumper sticker. They're the, they're the ones who are going hand in hand the, with the, the advertisers that they're supporting are supporting the television reality. And we all know that there's something wrong with this. I mean, and to some extent, Yang, I don't know if you saw in Yang's closing statement, he said, you know, after the last debate, and it was actually, he was answering a Reddit comment that a, a, someone on Reddit said, come on, Yang, break the fourth wall. And then that's exactly what he did. He said, they, all they commented on after the last debate was the fact that I'm not wearing a tie. And if that's really where, if that's where we're at, then this is never going to work. You know, so, so people don't actually want television performance anymore. I know we all love TV. We all love watching our Netflix instead of sleeping, which is really stupid, by the way. Sleep is more important. Your own dreams are more interesting than however they put on Netflix. But that's another, that's another point. Um, but we don't really want TV anymore, certainly not in politics. What we want in a digital age is nonfiction truth, you know? And people prefer nonfiction lies over fictional truth. They want rumors, gossip, things, traction. This is a digital age, not a television age. You know, and who works in the digital age other than Trump, who's really the end of a TV, reality TV age? Who works in the digital age? AOC works in the digital age. Right? But she works better on digital than she does on TV. You look at her on TV, on M it looks a little strident. It's a little much. It's a little in your face for TV. But on the net, it's kind of just perfect. Or Greta, you know, Greta, uh, Extinction Rebellion, Climate Change Greta. Not a TV face, not a TV talk, but that is internet. That is internet era rhetoric. Right? Democracy in a digital age is going to have to be participatory, not spectacle, right? Participatory means, sorry to say, television viewers, couch people that we are, participatory means our bodies in the street. It means actual civil disobedience, at, at least doing civic good, right? Digital, these are the digits. Digital age means your hands on, right? We're, we're actually back to doing things. Television is fighting us for control of this process, as are the big money institutions that are still aligned with television or any really monopoly, monopoly media industry like Facebook. But TV, what are they telling us on TV about this era, about the Trump era? They keep saying, don't normalize Trump. Don't normalize Trump. Sorry to say, this is normal. This is the new normal. You don't, are, are we the ones, make, it, make America great again? Are we gonna be the ones saying that now? Remember back? Remember, no, this is the normal. This is where we are, this is square one. You know, what these television channels are trying to do when they say this is not normal, they're trying to bring back the emotional coherence of West Wing, the emotional coherence of Bill Clinton. And that was just plain fake. 
I'm not saying he didn't do good stuff. He did some bad stuff too. But it was fake. That wasn't real. That was performance. Sorry, but normal TV is gone. Right? Cory Booker is over. He can make as many Google eyes at me as he wants. I'm not going to connect with that. What do you got to say? What are you going to do? How do I participate? Where should I show up? Right? The TV heads are well-meaning, right? but they're young. They're kids. I mean, I'm old now. I'm 58. I look at them, and I realize, oh, my God, these are children. These are child journalists. They've got no understanding of history. They, they, they look at a violation of the television ethos as the problem here. They've never read the last hurrah, right? They never read All the King's Men. They don't know who Willie Stark is. Do you know who Willie Stark is? Read All the King's Men. It's about the Trump. It's about Trump. Because it was written 50 years ago. They've never read it. So they don't know that people are sick and tired of the way TV and the neoliberal institutions it supports are dominating the way we're supposed to think about the world. Right? So, so they can't handle Epstein conspiracies. They don't know what to say. Like, what are they going to say? Look, they let this guy die because he knew stuff about them? They can't say that. So we turn to the Internet, and then we turn to the Internet, and it's crazy stuff. Right? It's way, 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 way further over. Right? The guy who raped kids and sold them to other rapists, he's finally in jail and he's killed or allowed to kill himself so he wouldn't expose the others in the ring. And there's nothing anyone can do about it. So we turn to the net for something more satisfying or factual than that televised empathy and feeling our pain and stirring monologues. Whether it's about Epstein or the latest shootings in El Paso. You know, and no, Trump does not have empathy. He doesn't. You know, and for some that's more refreshing than competitive empathizing and competitive social signaling, which is driving me crazy. How many times do people say, oh, let's hear from a woman first and then, then mansplain them before they finish their question? It's like, Jesus. No, TV's values are obsolete. And if progressives, and I think that's us, if progressives want to return to power, we've got to stop playing by television's rules. Thanks. You're on Team Human, coming to you alive from the Archetype Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska, where every 500-year flood is just another excuse for people to come together. Our first guest, Team Human's founding producer, musician, scholar of media, sound and technology, and recently returned like a prodigal son to his native Omaha, my friend, Stephen Bartolome. So hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming to Omaha. Um, so you, you were among the first to, to heed the clarion call I made, I guess, on NPR when I was just starting this new master's program in media studies and social change at Queens College. And you showed up, a musician, wanting to work in, in media studies. What drew, what drew you to sort of media studies as an extension of your, your, your music thinking? Right, yeah. So... I remember the, uh, the tagline was media studies for occupiers. And so it was right after Occupy Wall Street. And you know, I wasn't super active in Occupy, I went a couple times, but the ethos of Occupy, hacker, open source, reconfiguring ideas about civic participation and uh, what democracy could be, like those ideas were resonating with me. I was a musician working in media. And so it's like, oh, this, is, this could be cool. This sounds different. This sounds also sounds like a, 
you know, it was at Queens College, which was an affordable institution. So sounds like the kind of thing I could jump in, not be a zillion dollars in debt and kind of scratching my head afterwards with. So yeah, so it was that kind of idea of, of reimagining engagement. So the, the interesting thing to me was then after a couple of years of immersion in, you know, media theory, you know, sort of theoretical perspectives on media on the one hand and a whole lot of stuff on capitalism on the other hand, you ended up coming up with a, a, a thesis that I'm still thinking and writing about, you know, to this day, um, which was really looking at how the tools of music production are embedded with a whole series of values that, that we didn't expect. So you did this, you did this, this is really looking at things like uh, the control room, say, in a music studio as taking power away from the musicians. I mean, maybe if you could sort of explain that insight, it was really interesting to me. Right, yeah, so I like to look at, you know, music technology as kind of a window or as a media metaphor for other sort of systems and structures and biases in those structures in society at large. So the, the studio control room offers an interesting metaphor in that sense, especially in the digital recording paradigm. And so I think uh, I opened that, that writing with an my first experience of the professional recording uh, studio scenario, where in that control room you have this panopticon-like experience where the, the large computer monitors are literally monitoring everything. Tempo, pitch, the minutia of every musical detail is under the, under the scrutiny of a digital grid, of a binary, of an of a on-off kind of mindset. And so seeing that as being so foreign from my musical experience with friends in basements performing with live music, it struck me as, as an odd and even dehumanizing process. Like, like uh, we were producing m the musical raw material that then would be later be parsed and surveilled and collected. And so you, you kind of get this sense of the, the, the media metaphors in, all, in that language, right? That expression, culture, emotion could be reduced to marks on a grid than to be augmented, to be massaged, to be kind of reconfigured later. Right, so it's like originally the control room guy, he's not so bad, he's the producer, and you go in there as an innocent, you know, rock and roll musician, whatever, and this guy's gonna help you actually get a real record out and do that. So in some ways, the kids who are playing music are working for the producer? Well, and or? in some ways, that producer was never so innocent. You know, he was the, he was, that producer was the, the sort of uh, vision of a corporate music industry. And so kind of what I'm arguing is that vision in the supposed liberation of digital music technologies and that we all have these platforms and all these have these tools of, you know, multi-track studios that would otherwise, you know, you would have had to pay a mint to go visit that producer for a day. While that seems liberatory, at the same time, it's embedded with those values of the commercial producer. It's looking to create a musical product, an expression that fits in that sort of post-production mindset where everything is then reduced to the aesthetic of what sells, what doesn't offend, what doesn't pop out in the background at your local Barnes & Noble or you know, when you're shopping for shoes. And, and, that, you know, and even that's a, a generation or so back, because now it's how can we use AI-generated music 
in that that's created in a similar vein, reducing that sort of emotional component to to the the binary, to the grid, to manipulate mood, mood manipulation, Spotify playlist sort of world, which is right. kind of the next frontier. Sort of music beco- music becoming music. Music <laughs> in a feedback loop, like reiterating what it what it wants your moods to be. To, imp- to increase the consumption of those moods that it's creating, you know? Right. But, but where it gets to in a digital age, which is the part that then interests me the most, is the, an aesthetic where, just like I'm talking about in the television, of, uh, television candidacies, where anything that is soulful or human or irregular, if that's the right word, about the human performer gets shaved off. So if, if you've got James Brown reaching up to a note, that's auto-tuned away, that's quantized. So all the stuff that's actually, all the human artifacts of the musical performance are considered noise, when I would say that that's the signal. Absolutely, and that, yeah, that's how, that's how I feel about it too, is you know, that, that reaching for a note, those moments of frailty, to me, those are the opportunities in any musical expression or creative expression, artistic expression. It's the, the weird bit of brokenness or vulnerability that's the opportunity for sort of a communal experience. It's the invitation. Um, so, you know, and, and some of that comes, I think, from the punk ethos of you know not performing on a stage not creating the big the big artifice of celebrity you know we're all equal we're all in this and that was some of what was interesting i thought about occupy wall street thinking back to occupy wall street in the sort of the human microphone like thinking of that as a technology as a mode of of emotional and musical and artistic and political expression it's participatory it's not you know, locked behind IP or not, you know, biased towards sort of a re- reducing communication to digits. It's, it's, it's a shared experience and an invitation to amplify and reify communication. And it feels like in, in some ways our society is shifting in what it understands, what it understands as sacred even. So, the sacred that you're talking about is the sacred of, of the church, the sacred of the campfire, of we're here together having this. It's the sacred even of, I mean, for better or for worse, like the Grateful Dead show, where you imagine as you're listening, I could kind of play almost that well. You know, but that's partly the invitation you're talking about, that we could recreate that. They're human like me. They're just one of me. And that has been replaced by the sacred almost as mega church, perfect sounding, you know, crystal clear. It's almost as if the, the, the fidelity to human experience has been replaced by the fidelity of resolution. Right. Yeah. And, and what I see, the, the threat that I see in that, that, you know, maybe music is sort of a microcosm for, for the larger picture, is that it, it makes expression, emotion, culture, it sort of forces it to be machine legible. And once that stuff is machine legible, you know, once the, the, you know, the weirdness, the in-between the digits, the off notes, the harmonics that aren't, you know, encoded in 44-1, 16-bit 
digital. Once those things are, are, are erased, you know, are flattened, are, are forced into the machine legibility, then we, do, we, we enter the feedback loop where, where you have this programmed culture whether it be programmed culture in terms of the news feed you're talking about in your monologue or, you know, musical expression, that's where things get dicey. Right. I mean, the other places that it's weird are, first off, uh, uh, the, the quantized, you know, metrics of music, that sort of music, it, it dovetails way more easily with corporate capitalism than all that in-between weird participatory stuff. Absolutely. And, you know, if you look at some of the investments being made in, you know, from companies like Spotify, it's a lot of it is in artificial intelligence, analyzing the, the emotional components of music, what people are listening to, what people are doing when they're listening to. And so it's this transformation of music as just another conduit for surveillance capitalism and for the commodification of affect, of emotional space. And again, I think it's related to this like reduction of expression to something that's machine legible. You know, like I'm not sure how machine legible, you know, some of the weirdo, no, you know, noise bands that I was listening to are. Genesis, your friend, I'm not sure how machine legible that music, that cultural expression is. And I think that, like you were saying, that's a sacred space that we need to celebrate. We need to, we need to guard, protect. In some ways, just all over the place, just background music and you know, it's almost as if music then is, is become, has become its opposite in two ways. One, what kids are listening to, their MP3s with their friggin' earbuds. You know, that's not, as I said, that's not music. That's not music. That's what the song would sound like. Were you listening to it? But you're listening to an MP3 algorithm of things hitting your ear in ways that imitate the experience of music. But there's no sound waves hitting your body, right? Right. And, you know, I listen to music in headphones, you know, Etc. But also what you're hitting at, too, is that this idea that music is a communal experience. And we all, you know, we all need to step out and have our isolation and have our internal music experience. But ultimately, you know, we're here together. That feeling of resonance, literal resonance alongside music, I think, is something that we lose as music migrates into these very flattened, distilled processed spaces that you're describing and even the live music most of it i mean the big is is just as processed at this point right right yeah and again it's this feedback loop We're like we've been encultured to expect this aesthetic of expression that is you know it's what's readily sellable it's what's commercial and then it's what's reducible to productivity apps or <laughs> you know those types of the next frontier of where right. this music is Here's heading. your wellness music. Exactly, yeah. Well, optimize your day. Listen to this three hours and 21 minutes before going to sleep. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there is a company. It's, it's notably the first AI that was signed to a major label for however many millions, and that's exactly what they do. It's a mood-altering app, so it, it takes data from, you know, surveillance behavioral data. For example, the... You know, were you in a traffic jam? Did you have on your Google calendar? Do you have a meeting with the boss that you hate, et cetera, et cetera? And then generates whole cloth music based on these these inputs, based on behavioral data. And so, you know, the question is, I feel like to many people in this room, I know a lot of musicians are here, like that music would probably be laughable to us, right? But as as we're encultured into this machine legible sound, this this reduced 
music like that, reduced expression, the AI can then fool us, you know, can play our moods. Or really, you know, that company can sell to the investors that know it's just another surveillance company. I mean, it's interesting. You've, you've told the story of, the, of, of sound production from kind of the performer side. And I'm wondering, your experience as producer of, of Team Human, right? You were on the other side, you're on the other side of the glass, literally, in that one. And I'm wondering what, as, as a human producer, because you're doing the mixing, you're doing the fixing, as a human producer, what, would, what did you feel like when you were mixing these shows you were optimizing for? Is what were you, you, know, you, know, you know what I mean? Yeah, I feel like I was optimizing for connection. And what I mean by that is the, the cool thing about working on this project with you was that I feel like we always had a good sense of scale in mind. And that scale being this, this project, these ideas, it, you know, might not be a big hit, right? It's not, this might not be Billboard Top 40 material. But we were connecting with people, the emails that would come in, the people asking that question that you were describing in the monologue, where do I sign up? Where do I get involved? Where do I join Team Human? You know, the, the thing is you're already on it. You, you know, there's nowhere to sign up. But, you know, that, that was sort of the motivating factor for me was that idea, that, that feeling of connection. And it came in a very personal way. It was like one email at a time, one you know, person sending a message saying that they appreciated an idea that came through the show, meeting some of the guests, experiencing the, the magical warmth of a Francis Moore LaPay in the studio, you know, and, and being inspired in that way. Like that, those were the metrics, those are the kinds of metrics that right. I run on, you know? <laughs> yeah, and it is interesting. There's a kind of thing that it's really hard to do that at industrial scale. Maybe in some ways impossible to, to recreate the reality of the local reality, local incarnate human face-to-face -face rapport. There's yeah. something happening. But this is actually, um, on, on this note of connection, this is a, a good opportunity to bring up our next guest, Brigitte McQueen Shu. You're on Team Human, coming to you alive from Archetype Coffee in beautiful Omaha, Nebraska, perhaps best described as the birthplace of both Warren Buffett and Malcolm X. He only was here a couple of years, but he was here. Exactly. I know. People should. Be, if people knew that, right? Wouldn't that be? Wouldn't that be better? <laughs> Brigitte McQueen Shu is founder of the Union for Contemporary Art, reconnecting people through art. That. Thank you. You're. As I understand, from my looking at your work, reconnecting people through art that catalyzes civic engagement and ultimately uh, uh, catalyzes social justice. Hi, everybody. So, thank Hi. you. So thank you. Thank <laughs> you for being here. Thank you here. for having me. So you arrived, I saw this little story, you arrived in Omaha after, you were raised in Detroit and you I went was. all around, did all sorts of things. You got here in 2001 and remarked to your friend, where's all the brown people? That is a, that is a fact. That is and, a conversation I had. And I know it's a long answer, but mm. it goes right to the, the heart of the work you're doing right now. You're doing, I mentioned it, you're doing a, 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 this new project on the red line. Yeah. Um, where were all the brown people and why? <laughs> 
So, um, yeah, I moved to Omaha, Nebraska for the first time because I did that twice um, in 2001 from New York City, where I had lived for 13 years uh, working in publishing uh, and going to St. John's University to get a degree in journalism. Um, I moved to Omaha on a whim. Um, I was in a place in my life where I realized if I was going to hustle as hard as I was hustling, I needed to hustle for something that meant something to me. Um, and knew that I wanted to leave New York, didn't know where I wanted to go. Um, a very good friend of mine uh, that I grew up with in Detroit uh, lived here. We, she moved here when we were 13, so I spent summers in Omaha. Um, she was like, you should move here, it's cheap, you know people, it'll be great. Um, so I got here in the winter of 2001, 2002, and it was not great. It was not great at all. Uh, it was kind of wretched. Um, I was working from home, still working for Teen People, the magazine I was working for in New York. Um, and I did have a conversation with a dear friend of mine, uh, Wanda Ewing, who has since passed, where I asked her, where are all the brown people? Why am I not seeing any brown people? I was living 40th and coming neighborhood. Um, and I was told very matter-of-factly, all of the black people live in North Omaha, all of our Hispanic population lives in South Omaha. If you go west, you're not going to see a person of color, don't go there. Um, and downtown is sort of this weird mixing spot, but it's not really a mixing pot. Um, and I think the thing that disturbed me most about that conversation was how matter-of-factly, every time I had that conversation with a different person, they would say that this is what Omaha is. Not like, oh, we know this really sucks, and we know we need to change it. It was more, this is how it's always been, this is how it will always be. And I was not comfortable in that, so I ran away to Seattle. Um, and uh, did a little bit of back and forth, started the union eight years ago, and now we are doing this undesigned The Red Line project, which very succinctly shows me why all the brown people live in North Omaha and South Omaha, because it was a federally mandated program that happened in the late 1930s that set us on a path that we, as a community, have been resistant to change for 80-some years. And it's interesting, the... the The redlining program itself, when you look at the, the writing and letters between FDR and the Levitt brothers who mm. built Levittown, and Margaret Mead, who was working as a kind of freelance psychologist for his administration, they were actually looking at, okay, we got all these veterans coming back from World War II, they're all going to be depressed, they're all going to be crazy, let's do some social design here. Let's create houses in the perfect distance from each other of the most like people. And let's give them all mortgages so they all have to get jobs and they all feel slightly in debt and they're all gonna, no one with a mortgage is gonna have a revolution yeah. because, but to keep prices stable in these neighborhoods so that we don't have to worry about anybody's property value changing too much, we'll have the white neighborhood and the black neighborhood. So they drew the red lines originally for the banks, it was for the mortgages, for the money to keep it stable. And it wasn't even just that a black person couldn't move to a white neighborhood, but a white person couldn't move to a black one because it, it, it could change, it could screw up the banks. That is one of the most powerful for me. So I've learned so much about redlining the past few months, but that was really for me one of the most powerful things that is in the exhibition. And I, that is like a crazy thing to say because there is a lot of power in this exhibition, is an excerpt from a real estate training manual that if you were trying to get a real estate license in the 1940s, you basically, this was your textbook, this is what you had to use to pass your exam. And there is a really powerful 
excerpt that we've pulled from that that's in this space that essentially talks about that it's fine for people of color to want to have the pursuit of happiness and the American dream, but we need to recognize that our moving out of our neighborhoods is detrimental to the economic stability of our country. We are referred to as infiltrators, as invaders. Where have you heard that language lately? Um, the exhibition is full of that. I also think it's interesting when you talk about that GI Bill, to me, which I didn't realize, is that before that happened, it wasn't just about black and brown people not being able to move into different neighborhoods because of racial covenants. It was Greek people, it was yeah. Czech people, it was immigrants. But when that happened, all of a sudden, if you were white looking, you were white. So you were able to tap into this wealth. You were able to own property, own land, while brown and black people were not. Right. That is powerful. Right, and it, so for, for the, get this though, so for, like for Jews, Italians, Greeks, we got a boost. Yep, it was your moment. You know what I mean? So it was now your moment. It's like, so 70, 80% of people are like, oh, this is good. We, I remember my grandmother wasn't mm -hmm. for till later, but she said, finally, the Jews were white people too. Yep. She actually said that she knows the moment it happened and she felt white. Absolutely. And if you look at the history yep. of land ownership in North Omaha, it was all of those groups. It was all of those groups until the riots 1950 years ago occurred and all of those people fled west, fled west. Um, and we have not moved forward since then. We have not moved forward since then. So yeah, I didn't like it here. <laughs> and then I, it, I didn't. <laughs> and it's interesting, and then you look at it, and it's like, okay, so if it's, if it's written down by the banks, and then the Robert Moses and his equivalent come in and go, oh, there's the red lines, let's put the highways there, let's yep. put the big walls Which there. Which we did. Let's do all that, because we know where the lines are. We might as well just build on them. So now we entrench it, not just financially, and socially, but now physically, mm -hmm. we entrench the lines yep. in there. And you are born in a world with those lines. How do you not see it as, like the people you talk to, that's not irregular, Absolutely. that's normal. Absolutely, so our freeway, that experiment for us was I-75. Um, we have images in the exhibition space of what the land that I-75 now runs through looked like when it was a community. And it was green trees and big houses. It was thriving and beautiful. Um, and then the freeway came through and decimated it, broke up those communities, moved those people out. I mean, I was surprised I didn't realize this, that that freeway was not even meant to have an exit in North Omaha. It was meant to take you straight across town so that you didn't even have to see us. You didn't even have to see the brown people that lived on either side of that devastation. That was a thing that we had to fight for to get exits off of that expressway into our community. Right. Huge. Well, the problem is that it, it's not the exits they're as concerned about as the entrances. Well, absolutely. Because you know, then you're going to go on the go. highway and go exactly. to their neighborhood. You have the freedom yeah. to go wherever yeah. it is that you want to go. That's a thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, really, look at, I mean, they're all well-meaning, of course, but look at the projects in New York, and they're always putting these really inaccessible mm -hmm. places that they can't kind of get out to anywhere else, almost as if by design. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so this subject to me is, is similar to the one we were talking mm -hmm. to Stephen about, even though the stakes might be different, but we're looking at the way human beings are being forced to conform to these weird metric systems that are uh, against, their, against their best interests. And... Both of us know there's tons of scholarly work that was done on redlining mm -hmm. that's in these great, maybe boring, but great scholarly articles about how all this happened with maps and overlays and evidence. When you take that information and that history and tell it through art, mm -hmm. something else 
happens. Oh, yeah, it makes it real. It makes it relatable and accessible. It is not just this black and white text and these maps that you're just like, Ugh, like whatever, whatever this is. Like it makes it, it's, it's finding the stories, the nuggets that you can connect to. It's humanizing right. the things that have happened to us as a city, as a nation, as a world, <laughs> as a planet. Um, People like to say, well, redlining, that was a thing in the 40s. It stopped in 1968 with the Fair Housing Act. Like, we don't do that anymore. We do it every day. We do it, yeah. we do it every day. I see it in, in every aspect of my work. That segregation, that discrimination, those disparities thrive in our community because we let them because we let them, because we don't cross into North Omaha because our media has told us it's not a safe place for you to go. It's the way that we like, like do our whole Nebraska nice, where we don't have the hard conversations. We lie to each other. We like put whipped cream on everything and make it like really nice. But like, that's not what we're doing. That's not how we live. I love to talk to people about like friendships and connections because for me that's really where all of this mm -hmm. lives. It's about communication and conversation. And so I will often just randomly like ask like, how many black friends, do you have any black friends? Do you have any white friends? And the, the immediate is like, well, I'm friends with white people on, black, on Facebook or social media <laughs> or like Joe in my office. Like, yeah, but it's like, have you ever invited that person into your home? Like, like, do you know this person? Do you understand where they came from? And the answer nine times out of 10 is no. And it, that is such a difficult conversation for people, mm. a difficult truth for people to sit with is that we don't know each other. And until we start to know each other, like, personally, like face to face, like come into my home and have a meal with me, know each other, we continue this wretched nonsense forever. We don't move forward ever. It also, it also feels to me to be sort of one of the advantages of art over, over the scholarship, that mm. scholarship sort of makes the lines dividing people, the facts into the figure, and the humans are sort of in the ground. They're the background. Whereas in, in a work of art, sort of the humanity comes to the surface as the figure again. And you start to see, oh, I get it. It's this, you, you're focusing on the humans in the various prisons that we've put them in. Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing for me that was most interesting, the conversation that you and Steve were having, was the whole concept of sacred space. That is a term that I use often in my work because there is also the sacred space in the arts. It is the museum, it is the gallery, it is these places where you are meant to go and be quiet and put your hands in your pocket, um, where you often, as a person of color, don't see yourself. So my first experience with art was graffiti that I saw in Detroit growing up as a kid. At the Union, we try really hard to not fall into that sense of sacred space, which also often makes people feel like they're other, like you're not supposed to be there. I don't know how to act in the theater. I don't know how to act in a gallery. Um, I don't know how to move through this. So we spend a lot of time having conversation, again, about that art is everything for everyone all the time. It's how you dress yourself. It's the rims that you put on your car. It's the decisions that you make on a day-to-day -day basis. Like it's how you move through the world. And if you come into a space, like it is a space where you will see yourself no matter what you look like whether you are black or white or gay or straight fat or thin whatever you will see yourself in my team you will see yourself in our spaces you will see yourself sorry it gets me yeah. hello what do you think? 
But I can see myself in you, right? I am, but, and I am so damn proud of that, but that took intention. Like that is, that is a commitment that I made to myself and my community that I was going to build that. That is not a thing that happens accidentally. That is not a thing you stumble into. That is a thing that takes intent and commitment and fearlessness and selflessness and a whole bunch of other things that, that we all have the capacity to do. Every person in this room, every person listening has the capacity to make those changes. We just have to want to do that. We just have to want to do it. Hmm? Yeah. But I was raised in this world mm -hmm. where art was this thing my parents took me to mm -hmm. in these boring places where you had to be quiet. Oh, yes. And yes. it was like funded by like the Carnegie mm -hmm. Center melon of the thing of the who's it's whatever. Yeah, in Omaha, when you were right. in sixth grade, you get to go to the Jocelyn, yeah. which exactly. and the every Jocelyn is shifting, yeah. but I will in complete yeah. transparency and honestly, it is, I used to refer to it as the pink mausoleum on the hill. There right. was no life there. There was no life there. That is shifting, but that's, I think, very true. That is how, that is our introduction to the arts as children. Right. But as this thing, and it goes back to, weirdly, it's back to my whole problem with television, but it's like art is this thing that's being shown to me. Mm -hmm. And you're describing art as, as something, it's almost like something that's coming, even if I didn't make it, it's something coming from me. It is us. It is you. That's the conversation that I'm trying to have. It is you. It, it's everything. It's not a thing that you need to step outside of yourself to experience. It is you. You are art just by being, just by speaking. I genuinely believe that. I don't see it as this thing that you need to pursue. It is a part of who we are. We're just, I'm just a living work of art. You are. You are. As am I. <laughs> as am I. As is, as is everyone. And we yeah. create things every day. We build on that every day. We move that forward in all the different ways. And it doesn't matter to me if your life is numbers or your life is painting or quilting or whatever you do. That is your art form. That is how you put that out. That's what you project. It's interesting, though. I mean, I'll share. I'll share. Please do. Please share. We're sharing. I've been, I've been uh, uh, on a long arc, finally now returning to theater, which okay. is my first love. Awesome. Right? And I got an opportunity now to do two plays, like in a real theater, it's a the whole thing. And I feel guilty about this because we're in a, in a crisis moment as a civilization. We're, we're facing extinction. I should be doing nonfiction, political activism, civic this. If it's not directly connected to Extinction Rebellion or Sunrise Movement, I feel like how dare I go have fun oh. and make art and do plays when we're in an all-hands-on-deck moment as a civilization? I feel horrible that I can't remember who said this, but the whole concept of bread and roses. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where you have to have the things that feed you and sustain you that allow us to live, but you also need beauty. Deep, crazy beauty. You need love. You need to be fed, both physically and emotionally. And so I would argue that, that the arts need to thrive, that cultural programming is more important now than it ever was before, because we need those moments of love and passion to remind us that we are human beings, <laughs> that we are human beings. Because if we don't have that, if we don't see our stories on the stage, if we don't hear it in the music that we listen to, if we can't see it in a painting or like however that comes to us, we are nothing. We are lost in just the muck and the crap that is our day to day. 
you have to have bread and roses. You have to. So don't, don't you feel guilty about that. <laughs> don't you. Don't you feel guilty about that. I won't let you sit with that because that's not, that's not fair or valid. So you're saying it becomes, it becomes a, a, almost a North Star then. It, it is. Becomes, it gives direction to society itself. It, it is. It is the warm blanket that swaddles us. It is everything. It is the field of flowers. It is whatever you need to find the joy to sustain your soul so that you can continue to wade through the crap of our day-to-day. Like, it is that thing. Hmm? How do you make art that comes from the community rather than art that's kind of for the community. We had a a student, Juan Fernandez, who did a great master's thesis where he was looking at all these exhibits uh, and each one was one form or the other of gentrification. So, okay, this one goes to the barrio and they do this and they, but they, they sponsor Hispanic artists, but not from that neighborhood to come in and do that. And, and he was really looking at, look at, look at how, oh, they open a gallery in this neighborhood, but they're not really using neighborhood people in it. What sort of the, the, for people who are interested, and there are, I mean, I get emails all the time from people who want to start galleries, do art, reclaim public spaces and do things. How do you, how do you, what are some good sort of uh, uh, guidelines for making it about and from your audience rather than just at them? It has to be done with them. You can't live on the outside of that. So... I, that's a that's a tricky question for me yeah. because I've never I've never moved in any other way than the way that I move. So like if you if you there's like a a ton of union people here, whether it's staff or artists that we have engaged, and they are connected to the community in magical ways. Like they're from the community. Celeste Butler, for example, incredible quilting artist. Uh, she started her path with the union as a fellow, as a resident in one of our programs. We've shown her work in our gallery. She is now on my board of directors. It, 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 is, it is you have to see yourself in it. You can't just stand on the outside of the community and pluck the things that you want and move them to your sacred space, to your safe right. space. You cannot do that. Then it becomes that. like MoMA you, bringing in the outsider be, artist, you know, exactly. as they're not You to need to be justice. on the corner of 24th and Lake. In all the glory that that is, in all the muck that that is, in all of the stuff that it is, you have to start with the kids. You have to give them free, open opportunities to just live in these spaces and make work. And then you carry every single person you can on your back up that ladder. Every person you can. You add them to your team and your board, you give them an exhibition, you connect them to something that moves them forward. That is your responsibility. Right. If you're not willing to do that, you shouldn't be doing the right. work. Well, and at this point, you work for her. She's on your board. I work you're, for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I literally, yeah. like somebody said that to me the other day, and I was like, no, I work for you. I work for you. I bust my ass raising money so that you can live in this glory and do what you need to do. I work for you. Mm. <laughs> so we, you've, you've said... I guess famously that, you know, you, you see art as a foundation for difficult conversations. Yes. And we kind of talked about that because the redlining project, obviously, yes. the art is a foundation for, oh my God, we're a racist, segregated Jim Crow community here, aren't we? Uh, um, and you can start that conversation in ways you couldn't before. But you've also said art is a focal point for what connects us yes. and brings us together. Yes. Completely. Com- completely. Like, 
It is an equalizer in a really incredible way. So I am not an academic. I did not go for school for this like at all. <laughs> like this was something that I felt passionately about and just turned it into like a thing that is my livelihood. And sometimes I struggle when I talk to academics about art because they approach it from a much different, like they approach it from up here, from up here. It's about like all of these terms and they use big words and they make you feel like you're stupid, like you can't get it. When I talk about art, it's about color and texture and pattern. And what does this make you feel? And do you see yourself in this? Can you relate to this? Like, it is, it can be, it is not always, but it can be the great equalizer. It can be the foundation where we have common ground that we can have those conversations. I mean, we've had people come into the Red Line exhibition and just weep. I walk into that room and just weep. But then like, we counter that with like, an incredible exhibition we have in right now um, by a local artist, Angela Drakeford, who now lives in Boston, called Homecoming, where she basically turned our gallery into this garden refuge sanctuary for brown bodies that have to stand in the face of violence on a day-to-day -day basis. And so you leave one space in tears and you go into this other space that just fills you. We also have the abundance garden, so we feed our neighbors. We have a 6,000 square foot community garden as part of our campus. And that garden, I was out there today, it is solace. It is like everything in the world. So there's balance there. You can use art to push people to have the difficult conversations, to go to the place that they would be uncomfortable going in any other way, but then you also can feed their soul and bring them peace and show them like it is gonna be okay. Eventually, uh -huh. we're, we're all going to be okay. It might just take us a minute to, to get there. So you think we will be okay? Oh, I know we will. Oh, good. I do. I know I we will. I get so worried sometimes. I'm holding it tight in my heart. Don't worry. I'm okay. holding it. And I, right. have, like, I have a really interesting connection with the universe where it That's shines good. on me in a special way. It does. That's good. And so I'm going to hold that for everybody. Okay. I'm going to imitate I'm going to imitate you for a while Fair until enough. I got it inside. Fair enough. I, you just, go. All right. You go. I'm just, it's mimesis, you know, it, it works, it does. So, as long as we're getting advice, um, theater, you're doing a Denise Chapman, Chapman play. Yes. So, what, when you do a play, because play is different from, like, installation art or yes. pictures or that, what, how, do, how are you approaching doing, doing theater? So, we have a small but mighty performing arts space in our building. It seats about 50. It's really intimate. Um, but Denise Chapman is our producing artistic director of our theater program. She is an incredible actor and playwright. Like, she is a force of nature. Um, our theater program is essentially based on uh, the works of contemporary black playwrights. So, that is what we show. Um, we do two major productions and then a reading series over the summer. We use the programs, the plays that we produce in the, in the theater as a jumping off point, same as we do with exhibition, to engage the community in conversation about social justice and social change. So, for example, we just uh, completed a run, The Blues of Knowing Why, which was a play that was written about the murder of Vivian Strong, uh, a, a young girl who was killed by a police officer uh, here in North Omaha 50, 50 years ago. Um, so we talk about that. Our play more than neighbors deals with what happened to our community when that expressway went through the families that were disrupted so it has provided us with this really lovely way to sort of engage our neighbors in north omaha where they can come into space and see their stories their lives on the stage like they are art that is their story and then we sit down on the stage and we talk about it afterwards and we unpack it um, and those moments are magical from uh, donors that live in west omaha who saw the expressway going through on the news but never stopped to think that there were people there 
that there were people who were losing their home, that there were communities that were being des destroyed, to people who knew Vivian Strong, who were there when she was killed to give them an opportunity to talk about the impact of those moments on our shared collective history. So, so theater is a very powerful, is one of the most powerful things, I think, in terms of tools to, to foster that connectivity and to make that communication happen. Oh, and it's so, it's incarnate. It's it is. It's like the incarnate art form. It is. Um, and, and, but wait, there's more. Mm -hmm. um, another uh, uh, terrific um, DIY art form is the zine. Yes. And you do a zine, zine, fest zine fest also. We do. We work in collaboration um, with uh, a couple of, of zine artists in the community. So we have hosted this for three years. <laughs> Thank you, Paige. Three years running now. And that is like, that is magic time. So we usually have over 100 different artists tabling their zines. Um, we've had thousands of people come through the building when we do this event. It is huge, but it is, it's also a thing of beauty, as is just about everything that happens at the Union, if I'm being honest with you, because it is, I mean, it's everyone. It's all ages. It's, there's something for everybody in that space. You will see yourself reflected to you time and time again in that event. Yeah. Well, because zine culture is like the, 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 well, at least the early Renaissance people's art. You Absolutely. know what I mean? It's, it's the graffiti of literature. It's, Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's one of I, my favorite things that we, that we have happen in our space every year. And they do, do they do zine instruction for people? They and, do. We yeah. do workshops, like a range of workshops. We do, like everyone is tabling and selling. Like we have events leading up to it, events after it. I mean, it, it, really, is, it, it really is incredible. Um, yeah, it, hands down, one of the favorite things that we, that we do. And just in case one of the tens of thousands of listeners of this show are so inspired, how can they support your work, even oh. if they're not from here? So many Is ways. there a way to send money? There is a way to send me so much money on our website. <laughs> I well, will take no, all of your rich, money all the time. There's, so there's so billionaires who listen to this show. U-CA.org is our website. There is a support page where you can just give whatever you want to give. If you live locally and you can't give financially, that's okay. I don't you, care. You can come and volunteer. And it's U-CA.org. Yes. U-CA.org. The Union for Contemporary Art. So yeah, so we will take your financial love, we will take your love in time, we will take your love in just coming and having a conversation. I will take your love if you don't know any brown people and you've never been to North Omaha, for you to come into my space and ask to have a conversation with me so that I can show you what we do and why North Omaha is glorious. I will take your love however you wanna show it. It is all valid and true. And you can replicate this conversation, you listeners, and just share it with your friends. You can. And, and you can love her that way. Yes, you can. That is huge. That advocacy, that spreading that love for us is huge. Because in the grand scheme of organizational life, we are babies. The union is only eight years old. And so spreading the circle and pulling people in is actually more powerful than you might think that it is. And as long as we're spreading love, I, we should um, spread the conversation a little bit, at least in our last minutes. Do people have sort of thoughts, questions, comments, things they want to share with, with me or Steven? Or... Hi, thanks. This is for Brigitte. Um, have you found one particular way of reaching the community at large, like all of Omaha, more effective than another? What, if anything, have you been able to measure that's like, this is where we really reached the broader Omaha to bring people in. 
I don't know if there's any one thing. And that was a really difficult lesson that we learned as we were growing, that I think before we, we, we started off really small, and then two years ago had this crazy growth spurt where we moved into a bigger building. We were much more present, especially in the North Omaha community. And I think it was by trial and error. Like we, I will totally admit, we're working in this space where it was just like, well, we advertise all of our stuff on the web and social media. Like we put posters up in these places and then like had a real come to Jesus moment where I realized that was not connecting with a single person that lived around our building. No one in North Omaha knew who we were, knew what we were doing, and they kind of hated us. They kind of hated us because they didn't under understand anything. They just saw this, this organization move into a building that had huge cultural significance to the community that was very diverse, like did not know what we were doing. And so we had to switch that up and think about how we reach all of the people that we want to reach. So now we do this thing, it's called Every Door Direct. It's like a postcard mailing you can do through the, the uh, post office. We send postcards to thousands of people who live around our building based on zip code. So we're putting something in their mailbox so that they get it because working off the assumption that people in North Omaha all have access to the internet is stupid. So it really is, if you want to reach someone, you need to take a moment to think about where are they, what do they have access to, how are they communicating and connecting with each other, and then do that thing. But for us at the union, that was very, very trial and error. Like we were, I, I, will, I will say it, I was just like, I don't understand why no one's showing up and I don't understand why everybody's mad at us. And it was because they didn't know what the hell we were doing because we weren't talking to them. We weren't talking. So now we we invest heavily in that. Like not only just social media and not putting something in a mailbox, but having conversations, creating advocates for our organization and the work that we do in community, inviting families into our into our space. So I, I feel like there isn't a one thing. There's many things. There's many things you have to do. Thanks for talking to us. My pleasure. This is kind of a question for Steven, but I, maybe everyone can kind of jump in a little. Um, in the last couple of years, you've seen a lot of reissues of like new age music from the late 70s and early 80s, and I often kind of think about Brian Eno in the context of what you were talking about as well, that there's a lot of algorithmically based music programs that he started working with in the early 90s. And I kind of wonder what you think the difference might be between these sort of more spiritual or kind of whimsical approaches to creating music kind of on its own or in a more general kind of long form, gradual sort of format versus like the lo-fi beats to study and relax to style of YouTube programming and how we can tell the difference between those two sorts of missions for music. I think, I think um, on some level it's like a, it's, we talk about this a lot in the podcast. Um, it's an issue of figure and ground and, and the reversal of figure and ground. So where the machines are tools, where algorithms are tools to play with, to explore the limits of kind of hu human expression or to sort of look back at ourselves through digital lens and learn something, I think that, that those, are, those are valuable and creative and expressive tools. What, the thing that I'm sort of looking at and focusing on and, and critical of is when that flips, when we're the tools for the digital platforms, when we're, you know, the raw materials to surveil, to manipulate, to commodify, um, reducing the magic of our expression to what 
fits the market profile across, you know, whatever behavioral economics program is the next thing, right? Right. And in those cases, then revolution consists of taking that commodified stuff and rehumanizing it. You know what I mean? Which you can do. That was what, what Genesis Peorage and all the industrial music and stuff we were doing was taking the sounds of industry, the sounds of commercials, and saying, oh no, we can tweak, we can reclaim this stuff and then humanize it. I mean, so much what, what early hip hop was about also is a re reclamation of this where, you know, th that's, it's, it can be the way you get trapped or the way you reclaim power. Marshall McLuhan always said that when you have a new medium, it turns the last medium into its content. So who's being turned into the content, right? I want to turn them into the content while they're trying to turn me into the content. And on some level, it's not even a war. It could be looked at as a dance. This is the way culture, it's actually beautiful, as long as it's not bloody. This is the way culture moves forward. We're trying to, I'm trying to contextualize them, they're trying to contextualize me, and we go back and forth and back and forth until it's like, oh, I get it. It's just, this is just life. Well, thank you. Thank you, Stephen and Brigitte. Thank you. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guests today were Stephen Bartolome and Brigitte McQueen Shu. You can find out more about their work as well as how to support this show at teamhuman.f. And special thanks to our hosts, Archetype Coffee and the Maha Music Festival. Team Human is produced by Josh Chapdelin, edited by Luke Robert Mason, and funded by our listeners. Hint, hint. You've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Thank you. Thank you, catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.